uh, tech guys, if I walk around down here, is it going to mess up the camera? I'll be all right? Okay, good. I was told that uh, the battery on the microphone is only nine hours. So I, I said I would, might be tight, but uh, if the battery runs out, I have a loud enough voice. We can keep on going, all right? It's so good to be with you again. Uh, I must be honest, it's good to be in a place of peace. And I'll explain a little more uh, later. This is, this is family, and it's good to be with family. Uh, before we go any further, why don't we pause and ask the Lord to bless this time. Uh, this is his time. It's not yours, it's not mine, it's his. It's his word, it's not yours, it's not mine. It's his, and uh, so let's ask him to open our hearts and minds to his word. Father, we thank you for the reality of all that we have uh, sung in the last few minutes, the scripture that has been read, the uh, proclamations that have been made. You are good, and you are worthy of all of our praise and our adoration, our worship, our humble submission and service. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as your body, the body of Christ here in Ridgefield, Thank you for allowing us this incredible privilege and honor to come together as one body, to worship you, our one Lord. And Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Uh, again, as we've said, this is your word, it's not ours. And so we ask that you would accomplish your purposes in and through the sharing of your word and the truth of your word. Father, I personally ask that you would accomplish your purposes despite the speaker and his weaknesses. You know them, and they are many. But you are good and you are great. And so we ask that you would accomplish your good purposes here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes hard things happen. Huh. Sometimes it seems like the world comes crashing in around us. And as the, uh, the missions moment prayer uh, suggests, sometimes God's plan just doesn't make any sense. I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, my dad pastored a number of places, but uh, one of the places that, that was always one of my favorites in uh, my growing up was uh, in Longview, Mississippi. Anybody know Longview, Mississippi? Anybody know Pontotoc, Mississippi? Anybody know Tupelo, Mississippi? Okay, the Elvis Presley fans in the room know Tupelo, Mississippi, because that's where, where Elvis was born. Longview is, if you will, a suburb of Pontotoc, and if you will, Pontotoc is a suburb of Tupelo. So it is a small farming community in the north uh, eastern corner of Mississippi. And the parsonage was a converted shotgun house. Now, or rather, it had a shotgun hallway. You probably are not familiar with this kind of architecture. But in, oh, I'd say the uh, 1800s and early 1900s, they had no air conditioning. They would open the windows, but they had one long hallway that would go down the full length of the house. And the bedrooms might be on one side and the uh, kitchen and living room on the other side, but you could open both doors at one end and, and at the other end, and you would have a breezeway. And 
they call it a shotgun hallway because if there was a raccoon at the other end of the hallway, they could shoot at it from one the opposite end and take out that sh that raccoon without there being any damage to rooms on either side. I'm serious. That's that's why they called it a shotgun hallway. Well, this parsonage uh, was that architecture, but they had uh, put a wall at the opposite end. And uh, so when you'd walk in the front foyer, my dad's uh, office as pastor was right here on this side, and then there was the main entry here. And then there was about, I'm going to say, 35 foot of hardwood floor between that door and the back wall. And at the back wall was a relatively new invention, an indoor washer and dryer. Yes, I'm that old. <laughs> Before we came, they had uh, the means of washing was the roller kind that would then go into uh, a tub, and the dryer was outside on a line. That was the way it was done. But for the new pastor and his family, they got an indoor washer and dryer. So when you walk in the front door, the washer and dryer at the opposite end of the hallway. And I need to share that this floor was hardwood, and they used wax those days. And the four sons of the pastor loved to put on the crew socks, white crew socks, not black, white crew socks, and run down the hallway and slide. And so my mom never really had to polish that floor because it was always slick. Now, that home was a virtual menagerie of pets. We had all kinds of pets. We had hamsters. Uh, we had a horned toad that we brought back from, uh, from Texas. We had dogs outside that kind of adopted us. One was uh, popcorn. He was uh, black and white. The other was peanuts. He was brown and tan. And then Cracker Jacks, which was all kinds of colors mixed together. But the undisputed queen of the menagerie was Cat 2, our Siamese cat. Our first cat was named Cat, Siamese cat. She passed, and our next cat was Cat 2, Siamese cat. Anybody want to guess what the third cat's name was? Cat Trace. We wanted to get a little Latin flavor in there. So. But Cat 2 was your, your stereotypical Siamese cat, very aloof very proud, very much in control, didn't need us, but understood in her mind that we needed her. And so my mom tells the story that one day, um, right after this new dryer had been put in place, she did the laundry, she took a load out of the dryer and put it off to the side, and the phone rang. So she went and she answered the phone. When she came back, she put that wet laundry into the dryer, turned it on, and heard boom, da da dum, ba bum bum bum, ba bum bum bum. She rolled her eyes and thought, oh, one of the boys put a basketball in the dryer. Why she would think that, I still cannot figure out. That, that, that hurt us when, when she said that. So she went over to the dryer, casually, no rush. She opened the door, and out burst Cat 2 straight out of the dryer. Her fur was about three times the normal size. Her tail was about this big. 
and she came out and she shot straight out about six or seven feet and she hit that recently polished floor (laughs) and slid. And my mom said that she stopped, she shook her head, she shook her head again, and then she tried to get traction on that slick floor and couldn't get, and she ran another three or four feet, and then she stopped and she slid, and she shook her head, and she shook her head. And then she finally got to a front rug and got some traction. She ran into the living room and dove under the couch and stayed there for about nine hours. And her ears were down the whole time. And we look, and every so often we hear, We were able to get her out, and we inspected, and there was no physical damage except for her claws that were shredded. Because as, here's what happened. This was a new, interesting addition to the home. And as she approached it, there was warmth inside. She climbed into the warmth and got settled in to enjoy this new bed. And all of a sudden, the door opens, and a load of wet laundry comes in and crashes on top of her. And that door closes, and it starts to spin. It goes black, and she's hit with a blast of heat from hell. And she tries desperately. You know how the old dryers had little holes in them? I don't know if any of you know that. She died, tried desperately to grab hold of those holes and could not. And finally the door opened. And so her claws were, were torn somewhat, but the greatest injury was to her pride. And she recovered, but she always kept, kept a healthy distance from the dryer from that point forward. In that moment, her world caved in. It turned upside down. And she grasped for anything and everything she could to try and hold on. And it didn't work. And some of us in this room can identify with Catu. There are all kinds of things that happen that will bring what we view as safe and secure surroundings crashing down around us and sometimes upon us. Everything can go dark. Our world starts spinning upside down. We grasp for anything and everything we can to hold on. A blast of heat from hell seems to overwhelm us. And we cry out to God, Where are you, and what on earth are you doing? That can happen with regards to our health. You get the call from the doctor, and the test results were not what we wanted to hear. It can have to do with employment. You've done a good job, but the job has had to restructure, and now you've been given your notice. It can have to do with relationships. The one you've loved for so many years has decided to redirect his or her love to someone else. Or your children, whom you've poured your hearts and lives into, decide to reject all of your love and your counsel and go a totally different way. And you cry out to God, Where are you and what are you doing? I've probably never seen that more vividly 
illustrated than this past 10 days. Thursday a week ago, I got a call at 1.39 in the morning from Trooper First Class Rodney Valdez, the Connecticut State Police, who coordinates the chaplaincy program. And he said, Rev, uh, there's been, I'm a full-time chaplain, for those of you who don't know. Uh, I've launched a, a not-for-profit 10 years ago, uh, six, seven years ago, Lifeline Chaplaincy. So I'm official chaplain for Westport, uh, Stamford, and Connecticut State Police, but I serve multiple departments uh, around the area. But I am, uh, I'm part of his team. And he said, Rev, there's been a shooting uh, in which two Bristol police officers have been killed and a third injured. Uh, can you go down there? And I, I raced down there. And uh, he, no one can imagine the devastation. I was there for a while, then I went to the hospital where uh, Officer uh, Alec Iorato, uh was about to go into surgery and was with some of the the family members there and officers and then back to the the department and and for the next uh, nine days I was with the families of the officers who who passed and uh, with the officers who were trying to recover from it and then uh, uh, two days ago led the funeral service uh, up at the stadium I've never seen such levels of brokenness up close. Families, police department, a city, and literally law enforcement officers all across the nation wondering what's going on. Their world has crashed down upon them. And those of faith and those with no faith Call out to God, what are you doing? Why would you let this happen? You know, the, common, the most common question that I hear from cops on a regular basis, if there is a God, and if he's supposed to be good, why would he let this happen? The reality is sometimes stuff happens that we don't understand, and it is crushing, and it's, it is debilitating. And it's okay to call out and say, God, I don't understand. Why is this happening? If you have ever been in that situation, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine. He lived a long time ago, but we've become very close friends over the last 15 years. His name is Habakkuk. How many of you have done your devotions in the book of Habakkuk? A couple. Uh, all right, a few. So some of you have met my friend. He has become very, very dear to me in recent years because he was in this same situation. His world had come crashing down around him. Now, for those of you who have not done your devotions in Habakkuk, let me give a brief history lesson, and please don't turn off the, the, uh, the media right now. Listen to what I'm saying, because it all plays a part. Habakkuk was born in the era of good King Josiah. Now, you need to understand that back right after King Solomon had passed away, the kingdoms of Israel uh, divided into two, the northern kingdom and Judah. And northern kingdom went its own way. There were uh, patterns of, of unfaithfulness to God. And in 722, they were overtaken by the Assyrians. 
in that nation ended. But Judah continued. And Judah had some, uh, some ups and downs. They had some wicked kings who introduced idolatry to the nation. They would actually come into the temple and set up altars in the temple to do pagan sacrifices to those idols. And they even embraced the pagan ritual, uh, the idolatry related to Molech, in which they would sacrifice their firstborn son to him. And that was a direct violation of all of the commands and, and even the heart of God in those commands up to that point. Josiah came along and he ushered in a time of revival. And there was a time of peace where people had turned back to God. He came in as a boy and he served for maybe uh, 40 years or so. And that's when Habakkuk was born. So Habakkuk comes into a, a situation where the nation is solid. Their economy is good. Their national defense is good. Their relationship with God is good. Everything is good. And that's what he knew. And then, in a political front, the Assyrian armies to the north were mobilizing and starting to move south under the general Nebuchadnezzar. And the Egyptian pharaoh to the south said, no, we're going to resist them. And he started making his way. If you're looking at the map, let's see if I can get this right. Here is the Mediterranean Sea. Here's uh, Judah. Assyria is up here, and Pharaoh Necho is down here, and he starts moving up, and he comes through Judah to fight the Assyrian army. And Josiah, for some reason, we don't know why, decided to align with the Assyrians in opposing the Egyptians. And Pharaoh Necho sent word to him, said, God spoke to me and told me you're not supposed to do this, Josiah ignored that, and he went into battle, and he died that day in battle. And with him, all semblances of national security, national stability, and moral substance died with him that day. And one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, became king, and he brought back all of those egregious, offensive, idolatrous practices. And he started doing cruel things to the people. And in building his palace, he forced uh, Jewish uh, individuals uh, to basically become slaves to build it. And he reinstituted the, the pagan sacrifices to Molech. So all of that leads up to these opening phrases. And we're going to go ahead and, and read some of this. Uh, if you're wanting to take notes, there are going to be two points, and I'll get to them in a minute, okay? It'll probably be the, the shortest outline you've ever had. But leading up to that, in Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn. We're doing it old school. It's not up on the screen. So uh, you've got to use your Bibles or your electronic devices. This is Habakkuk uh, chapter 1. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You can understand Habakkuk's frustration. 
Judah is God's people. God's people are supposed to be doing things God's way. They are not doing it God's way. And from Habakkuk's perspective, God's sitting idly by and letting it happen. God's design for his people was always that they would, as a royal priesthood, if you go back to Exodus 19, you'll remember that God called his people to be a royal priesthood, chapter 16 and 19. And that's reflected also in, in 1 Peter. And that priesthood had the responsibility of being a reflection of God to the people and then the nations and then bringing the nations to God. So the responsibility of God's people is to be an accurate reflection of him, his priorities, his concerns, his passions. And Judah was failing miserably and, in fact, was doing the opposite. And Habakkuk cries out and says, what are you doing? God, you're falling down on your job because you're not keeping your children in line. And God responded, verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. That basically means they have lost all justice and dignity. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk wanted an answer, but not this one. In essence, God is saying, I've not ignored the problem with Judah. I'm going to address it through the nation of Babylon. And Babylon, we don't have time to go into all the details, but Babylon was notorious for their cruelty. They worshipped pagan gods, but according to this passage, they worshipped their own military might. And Habakkuk said, mm-mm, nuh-uh, that's not going to work, God. And his response in verse 12 in the passage we read, you can hear his frustration, you can hear his heart, you can hear his confusion. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Judah was sinful, but the Babylonians were off the chart. How can you bring about righteous justice to your people through a a nation that is horrific in all of their behavior? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He's talking about the Babylonians and and their cruelty and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. 
Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? In other words, the Babylonians are effective in gathering people like fish in a net and destroying them. And you're not going to do anything. You're going to use them. You're not going to stop them. And here's Habakkuk's heart, and I really appreciate him. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, God, I think you're wrong. Now, what have you got to say to that? And the passage that was read this morning is his response. Verse 2. The Lord answered me, write the vision, write it, and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits at a point of time. Yeah, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow. In other words, it's coming. The answer is coming. Don't worry about it. In verse 4, he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about Assyria. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. God's response to Habakkuk in this unimaginable situation had a twofold responsibility. He says, the just shall live by his faith. The Hebrew word there for faith can be translated either trusting or by uh, trusting in God or by his faithfulness, faithful obedience to God. And all of the commentaries that have looked on this say it's basically, it's not either or, it's both and. It's your responsibility, regardless of what going on, what's going on, is to have faith and to live faithfully. So the two points for your outline this morning. First, when your world is coming apart, when it doesn't seem like God's plan is making any sense, first, trust him. Trust him. Habakkuk had one very, very limited perspective. He could not see the eternal plan in the eternal scope of things. And because God's plan didn't make sense to him, he drew the conclusion that it was not making sense at all. And the need for Habakkuk was to step back and say, okay, I don't understand it, but I'll trust God. Even though I don't understand it, I will trust God. If you're like me, you like to have a full explanation before you trust. God doesn't work that way, does he? Can a three-year-old child fully understand a parent's restriction on that child? The parents say, you may, know, may not go out and play in the street at three years old. And the child says, I should be able to. That three-year-old child can't comprehend why the father or mother would not allow them to do something. In fact, it's been my experience that most of the times, children don't really understand, much less appreciate, their parents' directives. Has anybody here had children that are other than that? Can I hear an amen? 
Children by nature have a very limited perspective. And sometimes parents' instructions don't make any sense at all. But that doesn't mean the children have the right to not yield and trust them. Magnify that millions of times, and that's our relationship with God. Even though his plan does not make sense to us, it is to our benefit to trust him because he's got a much greater vantage point. I, my mind's aging and decrepit. Have I told you the story of my son on the maze in, in Wanta? Have I told you that? Okay. Uh, when we lived in, in uh, Wanta, uh, Long Island, there was a, a maze that was built out of cinder blocks, and it was probably about as big as to halfway back on the, uh, the pews there. And the wall was about uh, four f- foot high, and so at 30-some at years old, I was still able to jump up on top of that wall. I don't know if I could do it now. And so Micah is about three or four at the time, and he goes in. He can't see, and so he's going, and he's trying to make his way through the maze, but he, you know, obviously the walls are too high. I'm up above the maze, and I can see where he's supposed to go. And I said, okay, Micah, he knew right, right and left. Turn right, turn left. And sometimes the directions that I gave him were counterintuitive. It seemed to be going the wrong direction. But as he listened to me and trusted me, he was able to manage it and get all the way through the maze because his dad had a vantage point where he could see the whole maze. All he could see were walls around him all the way up there. God, our Father, is above the maze, and he sees the whole story and can be trusted. Flipping over to Hebrews chapter 10. You don't have to go there. But uh, the author of Hebrews is addressing uh, Christians who have started experiencing persecution. And he's uh, admonishing them, encouraging them to remain fast. And he quotes this passage. Uh, started, this is Hebrews uh, 10, 37. Yet a little while the, the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith. The author of Hebrews' answer for the harshness, for the bitterness of what they were experiencing as their world was crashing down was, trust God. You may not be able to get the answers. You may not be able to see where you're, what's going on. You may not realize how all of this is come, going to come together. But just trust him. So the first responsibility, when God's plan doesn't make sense, when everything comes crashing down, is trust him. But the second is implied by that same word, obey. Trust and obey. Any Baptist here old enough to remember the hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust him? A few of us, with either no hair or or light hair. That, that hymn captures this notion that it's not just a feeling of trust. It is putting that trust into action. 
Habakkuk's responsibility was to trust God, but to continue on in his responsibility and be faithful to God, even in the midst of everything coming crashing down. That was his responsibility. And going back to Hebrews again, chapter 12, after the author has said, the righteous shall live by faith, he then gives a list of examples of those who put conviction to their feet, or feet to their convictions, and lived out that faith. And it didn't make any sense. Imagine the conversation between Noah and his wife. Noah comes home one day and says, uh, Sweetheart, you never believe what happened today. She says, what? God spoke to me. (laughs) Yeah, right. No, seriously, he spoke to me. What did he say? He said, I've got to build a boat. What's a boat? Because they didn't know. Well, it's going to be this big vessel because a flood's coming. What's a flood? Well, water's going to cover the face of the earth. Are you sure you were listening to God? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Imagine the conversation between Abraham and his wife. Sweetheart, you never believe what happened today. What? I heard from God. He spoke to me. <laughs> yeah, right. No, seriously. Well, what did he say? He said, we've got to move. What? Leave our family? Leave our homes? Yeah. Where? I don't know. He said he'd tell us. Really? Are you sure you were listening to the right God? Yeah. And Noah and Abraham are just two in a long list of people who trusted God, but obeyed him as well. And you go into the next book, right after the book of James, and where James makes that phenomenal statement, faith without works is dead. There's no such thing as true faith without obedience. And if we're going to survive the crushing effects of the world collapsing around us, whether it's national, whether it's economic, whether it's personal, whether it's uh, physical, Whatever the crisis is, if we're going to survive it, the only way is to follow God's instructions to Habakkuk and embrace it in our own hearts and trust him. He's got a plan. He's not abandoned us. He's not off in some other celestial palace uh, forgetting about his work with us. He's got a plan, and he's going to work that plan out. And so we have the responsibility to trust him and obey. Habakkuk's closing comments uh, show that he got, got the point. In verse 17, uh, chapter 3, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now what he's done in that verse, and he's basically just given the whole scenario of the economic status of the nation, because they were an agricultural society. So he gives the crops, he gives the livestock, and he says, even though all of that is gone, even though our nation as we know it falls apart, 
yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places, on my high places. Habakkuk got it. But the solution is no less for us. When God's plan doesn't make sense, when everything seems to be crushing down, the best thing for us to do is to trust him. He's got a plan. He's working it out. He's not abandoned us. And obey him, regardless of how ridiculous it may seem. True story in closing. About 30-some years ago, uh, I was pastoring down in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And my wife had to go take care of her folks with something, so I took the two boys. Uh, Mike at the time was, uh, I'm going to say, is probably uh, five, five-ish. And so Philip would have been in the neighborhood of two-ish, uh, my younger son. And we went to this park, and uh, the park had the uh, playground, had typical stuff. But one of the things was uh, this green fiberglass uh, tube slide. Have you ever been to uh, a playground that has the tube slide? And it was about, I'd say, maybe two feet uh, wide and high. And um, Micah saw it, and he knew what it was, and he ran, and he climbed up, and he ran over and jumped in and went down and did that two or three times. And his two-and-a-half-year-old brother is standing, still somewhat of a toddler, chubby, uh, still, he's waking up to some of the larger realities of life, and he watches his brother enter up there and then come out down here, and he's fascinated by this. And so uh, Micah makes friends with some other kids and goes off and plays. And so after he, he goes, Philip goes over and he climbs up the stairs, and he goes over to that tube, and he puts his hands on either side as, as far as they could reach. And he looks in, and what he sees is this huge, big black hole. That's all you can see in that kind of situation. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's going to try and go in. And so I hear him mumbling at the top, and he's still some toddler gibberish. And he's, blah, 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 blah. and he's going in his mind, okay, I saw my brother do this. Am I going to do this? And so in that kind of situation, it's, it's a megaphone. You can hear everything. I heard what he was saying, so I called up and I said, Philip. Come on down, Daddy will catch you. And I look up, and he's got his hands on either side, and he says, Daddy! And it's reverberating through that tube. And I said, Philip, it's okay, you can come down. Daddy! I said, I'll catch you, Philip, come on down. And he put his hands down, and he went away and had a nervous laugh. He was not ready to do that. So time went on. And Phil, Micah did it again, and so he goes back, and he just automatically grabs it and calls, Daddy! And I run over and say, I'm here, Philip. I'll catch you. I'll catch you. Come on down. Daddy! And he ran away. Third time, he comes back, and I said, well, he's not going to do it, but I better be there. And he says, Daddy! And I said, Philip, come on down. All of a sudden, I hear, boom! I thought, oh my goodness, he's coming. I better catch him, because if I don't, I'm going to be paying for his therapy for the rest of his life. So I got ready, and I'm, I'm looking, and I was not prepared for what I saw because have you ever seen a baby when they're startled, how they go like that in their hands and their feet? 
That's what it was. His feet came first and they were up in the air and he's coming around and his arms are up in the air and his eyes are like this. And I thought, he's thinking, what on earth did I do? But as soon as his body made its way around that curve and his eyes locked on his daddy's eyes, that expression of horror was instantly changed to one of glee as he came into my arms. And I said, Philip, you're such a big boy. I'm so proud. He pushed my hands down. He ran over to the stairs. He went up to the top and he did that probably a dozen more times. And I thought, what an incredible example of what it means to trust. And obey. But he got up there and all he saw and could, could assimilate was there's this huge black hole and I don't know what is on the other side. And I hear my daddy's voice calling out to me, telling me what to do. I don't know if I can do it. But he keeps telling me it'll be okay and that he'll catch me. And so at one specific point, his confidence in his daddy's voice overcame his fear of the black hole in front of him, and he stepped out. Sometimes this life is like going into the middle of a black hole. But I am certain that as soon as we see our Father's eyes, everything will be okay. The challenge, the need, is for us to trust him because he's a father and he knows and obey even if it's scary and uncertain because he will catch us. Let's pray. Thank you for that incredible reality, Father, of your love, your goodness, your wisdom. Thank you that you know what's ahead. And thank you that you know how to direct us. Father, you also know our weakness. You know our struggles. We ask that you would empower us to embrace faith and apply faith, to trust you and to obey. Because we know there's no other way to have your joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.